from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got to This is the Blitz at 6. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, May 18th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Ahead in this hour, we're going to go through the latest on Quentin Dunbar's case. Turning himself over to police over the weekend and released from jail on bail. So we'll just dig through a bit of that. He also released a statement and spoke on the alleged armed robbery for the first time on his Instagram page. I'll read you from that. We also got to hear from Andy Slater, uh, an an unique perspective on this, as well as Andrew Brandt on Friday. So some of that sound to dig into Plus, over the weekend, we also learned that the NFL is considering improving draft pick selections of the third round for teams that hire minority candidates as head coaches or general managers. Why is this problematic? Incentivizing teams will explain. And, of course, the last night of the last dance, the last last dance on yesterday. And uh, pretty incredible, emotional two episodes. Steve Kerr, we learned more about as well as... Jordan and the potential of bringing that team back for one more year. Jordan said it was there. We'll hear from him. Some of the best sound clips all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. NFL cornerbacks DeAndre Baker and Quentin Dunbar turned themselves in to jail on Saturday after arrest warrants were issued for both of them in relation to an alleged armed robbery investigation. Both were issued bond as a result on Sunday, according to the Broward, Broward Sheriff's Office in Florida. Miramar police said Dunbar uh, turned himself in on what his attorney, Michael Greco, calls, quote, a bogus arrest warrant based solely on uncorroborated witness statements. Dunbar appeared in Broward County bond court on Sunday. A judge reportedly granted him 25,000 bond per count, totaling $100,000 for four counts of armed robbery with a firearm, according to the jail's website. Baker Uh, who plays for the New York Giants, reportedly given a $200,000 bond. Uh, But according to their respective arrest warrants, Baker and Dunbar were at a house party last Wednesday where several attendees alleged that the two players stole thousands of dollars in cash from them, as well as valuable watches while armed with weapons. Baker is charged with four counts, each of aggravated assault with a firearm and armed robbery, No court appearance scheduled for him. As of now, Dunbar faces four counts of armed robbery with a firearm, according to Miramar police. A few hours after posting bail and leaving Florida jail, Dunbar posted a statement on his Instagram page. He said, I would like to thank all my fans for the support and apologize to the Seattle Seahawks organization for any unnecessary distractions that these allegations against me may have caused. In addition, I'm very grateful to be a part of a team that supports one another and uphold the credi- upholds the credibility of each of its members through adverse situations. Moving forward, this entire situation has taught me how to not associate myself with environments that may mer- mischaracterize my values and who I am. Andy Slater joined 710 uh, on Friday and talked about the alleged incident, incident and stemming from a card game. Cheating going on in, in a poker game. Uh, some type of uh, card game, whatever was happening 
at that residence, and there's a history of all these people getting involved with each other from like two or three days prior to this incident. So there's a lot of questions about this story, uh, but for now, at least according to his attorney, Dunbar had no involvement. Uh, Andy Slater, working for Fox Sports, he also talked about Dunbar's attorney uh, having potential evidence uh, that helps Dunbar's case. Well, what I could tell you is I've been speaking with Dunbar's attorney ever since late last night, probably around um, 10, 30, 11 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, when I first spoke to him, he had no comment whatsoever. So there was really nothing to report. Um, and then I just spoke to him uh, probably about 45 minutes ago to an hour ago. And he told me he has these letters. And it's not necessarily saying he wasn't there. Um, it's just saying that he was not involved. And his attorney, Mike Greco, will actually join John Clayton this morning at 11 a.m. right here on 710 ESPN Seattle, probably to explain some of those letters as well as uh, his client's side of the story. Andrew Brandt also joining Danny and Gallant on Friday. And when it comes to the potential discipline, he said there's a couple of different things you have to consider. There's three areas to consider right now. There's the law. And there's the law of Goodell, and then there's the law of Seattle Seahawks. And these are all different determinations, and each team has their own course, and it may vary from player to player. You know, the obvious point that I make all the time is this is not a democracy in pro sports. Not a democracy, yes, uh, a Goodellocracy at certain times. Andrew Brandt, though, on how teams can handle their own discipline. They don't always have to wait for Goodell to make a move. The big point in this, as you mentioned, is teams do not, and I repeat, do not have to wait for Roger Goodell. <laughs> they can discipline. And the ultimate discipline, as I just talked about, is releasing the player. So... I think a lot of teams and, frankly, a lot of people I talk to in media all think, well, just let Roger handle it. And maybe that's exactly what Seattle's going to do. Let the commissioner handle it. Or the court of law, or wait and see, all those things. But I always stress to people, there's no, law, there's no rule against teams doing their own discipline. Sometimes people think it's, it's all the league. Andrew Brandt, formerly working with the Packers, also formerly with ESPN, now a columnist for the Monday Morning Quarterback, uh, plenty of experience in this department. And he also had this to offer up, what the team might do with Dunbar. It's a unique situation. They don't have to do anything. Dunbar continues in the program. Uh, he has internal discussions, perhaps, with the team. And maybe there's some talk about, we'll get back to you with discipline. Or it becomes a league matter. And then they're looking into all the documents, interviewing witnesses, figuring out what the appropriate discipline is going to be. If this happened in September, then we're looking at this list that came out a few years ago, back with Greg Hardy and Adrian Peterson, called the Commissioner Exemplist. And then there is a place to park someone like Dunbar until they get this figured out. But that's not really appropriate now because there's nothing to be exempt from. There are no games. So it's it's a unique time where they really don't need to do anything. 
Speaking of that unique time, of course, live sports slowly starting to come back. We got racing over the weekend and some golf, which we'll dig into later in this hour. But we've all been tuned into The Last Dance on ESPN, the 10-part docuseries, uh, talking, going through the legacy of those 90s Bulls, of Michael Jordan, of Phil Jackson winning Six, the double uh, three-peat, and yesterday we capped it off with episodes nine and ten, and there were some pretty incredible moments. Um, how about, well, we did see Rodman uh, no-showing for practice during a playoffs, getting fined for that, and then one of my favorite parts, uh, the media guy talking to the camera crew and saying how they plan to sneak Rodman out. All right, so here's the problem. You got 300 freaking media out there. Dennis blew off practice, and he got fined, and he's got nothing to say to nobody as he would say in his words. So we got to try to sneak him out gate three and a half while 300 media are in the main hallway in front of the locker room. I don't know if we're going to get that done. Totally normal stuff, right? They actually pretty much do it and pull it off flawlessly. 300 media people just attempting to chase him down, but you know they're held down by heavy equipment and uh, couldn't keep up, couldn't keep up with Rodman. Also, I'm not sure that would happen today, by the way. Michael Jordan talking about, at the very end, uh, winning that sixth with the Bulls and uh, the, the conversation about a possible reunion, about coming back. And Phil Jackson saying that Jerry Reinsdorf actually did call him and attempt to do that. That night, Jerry Reinsdorf called me up and asked me to come back. After the, the sixth championship, I I offered him the opportunity to come back. You've earned the chance, the opportunity to come back, regardless of what was said before now. I said, well, I think I should just take a break. I said, I don't think it's fair to Jerry, and I know it'd be difficult for him to accept that. Michael Jordan uh, sort of being given that iPad, that famous iPad, to react and watch some of these videos, including Jerry Reinsdorf's statement on trying to get the band back together and go for a seventh. Uh, Michael Jordan, his thoughts, though, on that reunion that never happened. In 98, Krause already said at the beginning of the season, Phil can go 82-0, and he was never going to be the coach. So when, when Phil said it was the last dance, it was the last dance. We knew they weren't going to keep the team. Now, they could have nixed all of it at the beginning of 98. Why say that statement at the beginning of 98? If you ask all the guys who won in 98, Steve Kerr, Jeff Bushler, blah, blah, blah. We give you one-year contract to try for seven. You think they would have signed? Yes, they would have signed. Would I sign for one year? Yes, I would have signed for one year. I've been signing one-year contracts up to that. Would Phil done it? Yes. Now, Pip, you would have to do some convincing, but if Phil was going to be there, if Dennis was going to be there, if MJ was going to be there to win our seventh, Pip is not going to miss out on that. Seventh that never was, though, and we'll hear more from Michael in this hour reflecting on his time, but pretty incredible, a 10-episode docuseries. What are we going to do next Sunday, man? I don't think the Lance 30 for 30 is going to grab me quite as much. Up next on The Blitz, the NFL is considering incentivizing teams with third-round, better third-round draft picks if they hire minorities as head coaches and general managers. We'll explain why this is problematic. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.
You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, May 18th. Sometimes it's a busy news week on Friday especially and a lot of stuff. A Friday news dump happens and you might miss out on a few headlines. Uh, Maybe you missed out on this one. The NFL considering improving draft pick selections in the third round for teams that hire minority candidates as head coaches or general managers, according to an ESPN report from this past Friday. Teams could also receive compensatory picks, excuse me, if minority candidates remain as a head coach or GM into their third year or if a team loses a minority candidate who becomes a head coach or GM with another team. There are also possible draft pick incentive incentives for hiring a minority coach as a coordinator or quarterbacks coach. Their proposal will be one of several that is expected to be discussed this Tuesday uh, during the virtual team owners meeting. Any proposal would need 24 of 32 votes in order to pass. There are currently only four minority head coaches, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin, the Chargers, Anthony Lynn, the Dolphins, Brian Flores, and Washington's Ron Rivera, and two minority gems, excuse me, GMs, Lydia, you can read this morning, the Dolphins, Chris Greer, and the Cleveland Browns, Andrew Barry. Sam Acho, who is a member of the NFL Players Association's Executive Committee, he was on ESPN Radio on Sunday morning talking about this proposal, and in his mind, the solution is about giving deserving coaches opportunities earlier in their career. It's not about incentivizing NFL teams to hire minorities as head coaches and GMs. And uh, here's a clip from that. Here's Sam Acho on why incentives aren't the answer. About incentives. It's got to be about giving the, uh, the right coaches the right opportunities. The problem with the NFL is that there's, it's such, there's so much cronyism. It's all about who you know. Oftentimes, NFL coaches aren't the best coaches. They're not. Oftentimes, people talk about the politics and the business of football. It's about who you know, and no one wants to talk about it. You could, you could, no one wants to talk about it, but NFL is about who you know. Now, when you see really good coaches come about, you really get excited. That's why for me and a ton of players, you, you get happy when you get a coach who's actually a good coach, not just the guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. That's, that's what happens. I got a buddy, gets in the door, and now all of a sudden he becomes a position coach or a linebacker coach or a head coach or whatever, as opposed to giving the best possible candidates and opportunities. So do I think an incentive system is the way? No. More on that from Sam Acho, who is an NFLPA executive committee member on why it's hired fire minority coaches to move up the ranks. There's two coaches of color right now, as far as head coaches. But the highest you'll see is maybe a position coach, maybe a coordinator, but you won't, it's, it's very rare to get past for, for an African-American to get past being a coordinator. And if you do, you're on a short leash. And no one wants to say it, but my, my proposal, my, my suggestion, not even a proposal, but a suggestion would be ask the people uh, who are in those positions what, what they would need and then listen to them. I think oftentimes you see people uh, in power trying to figure out solutions without actually trying to get some input. And so I think you ask the Eric, the enemies of the world, you ask the Todd Bowles of the world, you ask uh, the Byron Leftwiches of the world, hey, what would it take for you to get for you to first of all do you feel like you've gotten a fair chance and if not what do you think we need to do to make it to make it better for you finally Asha saying Sunday that last month's draft the virtual draft also put the NFL's lack of diversity in power positions on display because uh, it was a lot more visible since everything was virtual and um, you were seeing into those head coach GM 
sort of uh, relationships and the lack of diversity also on display? Personally, and I think for a lot of not only players but Americans, I think a lot of people are just fed up. I know a lot of us watched the draft, and that was really an inside look into what uh, the NFL looks like, but also what a lot of corporate America looks like. You see, uh, at least in this scenario, a majority of white male owners or white male coaches, and then the employees are, at least in the NFL specifically, are predominantly African-American. And so you wonder, man, where are the people of color? Where are the minorities? Where are the women? Where Where is the diversity? And I think that's it's like one of America's best kept secrets. No one knows who's in charge, especially in corporate America. But we got, because of COVID, we got an inside look to who's in charge. And I think it just opened some people's eyes into a, a, a bigger problem that's going on in our country, which is a lack of diversity, uh, especially in positions of power. Dan Graziano also had some thoughts on this over the weekend. ESPN NFL Insider saying that this proposal is almost an admission of failure. It's a startling admission of failure uh, on the part of the NFL about its its uh, minority hiring practices. I mean, it, the idea that they would have to incentivize teams with draft picks in order to improve these numbers is, um, it, it, I don't know if it'll pass or not, but just the fact that they're discussing this indicates the depth of the problem. I guess if they get credit for anything here, it's at least finally realizing that. But, man, this is a this is a symptom of a, of a far more systemic issue that um, – you know, probably doesn't get addressed without a major change. Also weighing on the owners' minds, I'm sure, is the return to play and when will they be able to safely bring personnel back into buildings? When will they be able to get players on the field? Jeremy Fowler of ESPN uh, on what the NFL plan is to get personnel first back into their buildings. Players are really third on the list right now because the NFL, I'm told from a source, has a tiered system, a phase-in approach for bringing people back. They want to start with some staff members as early as Tuesday so the Atlanta Falcons and some other teams are able to start. And then you go to coaches and then some players, not all, I'm told the league expects to phase them in depending on medical guidelines. And so the league believes they can't do steps two through four without step one. That's that's why there haven't been a lot of contingency plans floated about the regular season. Also on how realistic it is that mini camps will happen in June. So OTAs and mini camp will all be done virtually and that anything in person will be scrapped. The league is still holding out a sliver of hope. They haven't made a final call on that. I think everybody's more comfortable with training camp later on in the summer because they know they need at least a few weeks to practice and get ready for game action. Any big decision like this with players will have to involve the players' union. And I spoke to somebody just recently about whether they're going to informally poll their hundreds of players about how they feel about getting on planes, getting back in buildings, on practice fields. I was told, yes, they are going to do all those things soon. They're simply not there yet. They need more information. Coming up on The Blitz, still more favorite moments from The Last Dance, those two episodes yesterday, The the Last Last Dance. Um, Learning about Michael Jordan as a competitor, really getting an inside look at his human side has been wonderful and phenomenal. The types of questions he's been asked, but also to hear from those closest to him on the type of competitor he was. I'll play you some of that sound. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, May 18th. Hopefully everybody has been enjoying The Last Dance as much as I have the 10-part docuseries. 
that Netflix and ESPN has put on together, getting to see Jordan in a whole new, much more human light throughout these. But The Last Dance, it finally actually happened in the episodes 9 and 10 yesterday. And it was cool to see a lot of different parts of that, including in 98, the Eastern Conference Finals, almost the more uh, stressful series for Jordan and the Bulls, uh, going up against Reggie Miller and the Pacers. And getting down to the wire there in Game 7. But Jason Hare, who is the director of The Last Dance um, and been making the rounds on a lot of podcasts lately, he talked about the feeling in the Bulls locker room before Game 7 versus the Pacers. It's one of the few times in all of the footage, either in 97, 98 or prior to that, that I had ever seen that office that Michael had off of the locker room tense. Because even when you skip ahead to episode 10, you see him on the day of the game. He's loose. It's just he's got this preternatural gift. He just kind of like lives in the moment. But there was clearly tension in that locker room before game seven. Because I remember watching that and being nervous. Like this could be the last time we ever get to see Michael Jordan play basketball. And you know it went through his head. But normally that office is loose. He's handing out tickets to people. There's visitors coming in. They're joking with each other. The TV's on. This was... As they said, nut crunching time. Jason also saying that Jordan more relieved than anything after that Pacers series win. And then the relief afterwards. The first thing he said when he got in the locker room is this shit is hard. You can hear the relief in his voice. You can see it on his face. He's elated. It's almost like a celebration that you would see after a finals victory. It's him going around guy by guy by guy and congratulating him saying what's up D-Rod and and I think he said to Kerr way to make the shots I mean he is so ecstatic that they have made it this far Michael Jordan also talked about in the final episode that everyone would be willing to return and fight for a seventh also learning that Jerry Reinsdorf did call up Phil Jackson the night after winning that championship and offer him that opportunity uh, to reunite and try again but uh but Phil Jackson saying he knew it was time to go. Would help if I played the sound. Wait for it. This is a, a good time to go. It's a great run. We've had a wonderful time. Good team. Time to go. Ramona Shelburne also echoing that as well. Reinsdorf almost got the band back together. I think what everybody wants to know from Reinsdorf, like, did this really have to be the last dance? Could you have done anything different to change things? Um, could you have fired Jerry? Could you have stepped in? Could you have gotten Phil and, and Krause to back on the same page? Could you have paid Scottie Pippen? And he tried. He actually did. He went to Michael Jordan after the season and said, hey, Michael, you know, we've done this before. We, we, this is three in a row. I, I know what the team wants to defend the title. I, you know, everybody's a year older. I know this felt like the last dance and all that, but don't give me your answer right now. We're at the beginning of the lockout. Let me work on Phil. I don't know how long this is going to last. It could be months. It ended up being all the way into the next year. Um, and l- let me just see if I can get Phil. And Michael said, okay, you know what? If you, if you can get Phil, I'm in. But we learned about Phil Jackson earlier in the series. I think it was either episode two or three. We learned about him as a coach, his upbringing with his parents, uh, both being in the church and how he believed that there was a finite amount of time for something in order to maximize its potential. And I think earlier in the series, he mentioned that seven years was about that time period for him before he believed that you should move on and do something. And Ramona Shelburne echoing that, that Phil Jackson was ready to leave no matter what. Phil had just gotten to this place mentally where he just said it was time. 
it's not necessarily me and Krause or can we coexist or anything like that. I think he, Phil just felt like it really had run its course, like too much blood had been spilled and they had already had all these goodbyes and everybody had, you know, kind of made their peace with it. Plus he knew that Krause wanted to turn over the team. Like there was a lot of free agents that were going to move on. Um, and Phil has this great part in 11 Rings where he talks about one of the Buddhist teachings of like, you know, I know that you can only really transform yourself when you really, truly let go. And, you know, you have to just subject yourself to total annihilation over and over and over in order to evolve. Um, and Phil had gotten his, his head in that place. I think Phil was also really tired. So by the time Ryan Sorf came to Phil towards the end of the lockout, Phil was just, you know, it was there was a no go. Tired, understandably, over that tenure and dealing with so many larger-than-life personalities. Michael was asked on the documentary, though, was it then even more frustrating to walk away at uh, what felt like your peak? So is it then satisfying to leave at your peak? No. Or is it maddening to leave at your peak? It's maddening, you know, because I felt like we could have won seven. Uh, I really believe that. We may not have, but man, just not to be able to try, that's, that's, that's something that, you know, I just can't accept for whatever reason. I just can't accept it. Michael Jordan also talks about his evolution through winning all those championships. Yeah, 91, 92, I was, I was young, full of energy, hungry in 98 when winning six out of eight and yet being just a dominant as you were in 91, that's where the, the, the craftsmanship came in. And I think 98 was much better than any other years because of how I was able to use my mind as well as my body. Speaking of that mind, we also have gotten some cool inside looks into Michael Jordan, the competitor, and author Mark Vansel, who wrote Rare Air along with Jordan has been featured at, at parts during the documentary, and he talked about MJ's ability to be present. That's setting him apart from other competitors. Most people struggle to be present. People go and sit in ashrams for 20 years in India, trying to be present, do yoga, meditate, trying to get here now. Most people live in fear because we project the past into the future. Michael's a mystic. He was never anywhere else. Never paralyzed by fear like even Samo, so many of the greats are. A big downfall of a lot of players who are otherwise gifted is thinking about failure. Michael didn't allow what he couldn't control to get inside his head. He would say, why would I think about missing a shot I haven't taken yet? This was pretty incredible. Doesn't even let that enter into his mind. And finally, Michael Jordan's uh, last words in The Last Dance got to hear it from him. When I look back, that's very gratifying to come from Wilmington, North Carolina, and never been in Chicago. Rap became my home and became a part of my history. My passion on the basketball court should have been infectious because that's how I tried to play. I played for them. Start with hope. Start with hope. We went from a team to one of the all-time best dynasties. All you needed was one little match to start that whole fire. 
Pretty cool. Also pretty cool that uh, Pearl Jam making an appearance there. Every Seattle fan uh, appreciating that as well. But 10-part docuseries, The Last Dance, if you missed any of it, I'm sure it's on demand somewhere. you got to make sure that you catch it because that was one of the coolest things that I've ever seen on the sports documentary side of things. Up next on The Blitz, it's time for The Hot List, the latest on Quentin Dunbar's case and finally speaking out and making a statement himself. It's next in The Hot List right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! bit of NFL news for you. Minnesota Vikings safety Anthony Harris signed his franchise tender by signing said tender. Harris will be paid a guaranteed salary of $11,441,000 for playing in 2020. Harris and the Vikings have until the July 15th deadline to agree to a long-term contract. 28-year-old Harris tied for the NFL lead with six interceptions during his breakout campaign in 2019. He's totaled nine over the past two seasons, including a pick against Saints quarterback Drew Brees in Minnesota's wildcard playoff victory in New Orleans on January 5th. In addition to those nine interceptions, he also has 180 tackles and 11 passes defense over five seasons with the Vikings. How soon could baseball be coming back? We know that MLB and the MLB Players Association were entrenched in some discussions last week, but that the financial side of things would be a huge sticking point in player compensation. We also know, according to Jeff Passan, that Major League Baseball will also need approval from public health commissioners. Baseball feels like this plan needed to be as detailed as it is, not just to get players back and have them feel safe and feel like they're in a healthy environment, but because public health commissioners and local health officials are going to have to rubber stamp any plan that Major League Baseball has to come back if it's planning on coming back in the 26 major metropolitan areas where it plays in. So this was almost a nod to them and to this idea that if we're going to do this, We need to do it as thoroughly as possible and try and cover every contingency possible. Buster only saying uh, the biggest roadblock to a deal between players and owners. In the end, it's about the money, and it's about coming up with an agreement. You know, the players, uh, and you saw Tony Clark, I mean, dating back two, three weeks, talking about how they're not going to negotiate any more salary rollbacks. Scott Boris, who's viewed as having a lot of influence on Tony Clark's thinking, saying things along the same lines. Uh, And on the other hand, you have the owners saying that, uh, you know, we need rollbacks because we're going to lose so much money if the players don't give us rollbacks. If the players stand on principle and they say, you know, we're against anything that caps earnings, then it's going to be a big problem. Jeff Passan also on some of the ways that maybe you haven't even thought about that MLB might change if it is able to return. Baseball as we know it is going to change. Now, it's going to change in really small ways sometimes, Hannah. You're not allowed to spit. You're not allowed to have sunflower seeds on the field. One thing that got a really visceral reaction was 
the, the point that we will discourage players from showering after the game. That didn't go over well, and the MLBPA, as well as Major League Baseball executives, are going to have their chance to voice some of those concerns, and it can be everything as simple as, hey, we want to take a shower after the game, to, hey, it doesn't exactly say what happens to me if I test positive on the road. Also, the NFL weighing a lot of different ideas to get the personnel back into their facilities. As of now, they have a somewhat tiered system, according to Jeremy Fowler of ESPN. Players are really third on the list right now because the NFL, I'm told from a source, has a tiered system, a phase-in approach for bringing people back. They want to start with some staff members as early as Tuesday, so the Atlanta Falcons and some other teams are able to start. And then you go to coaches, and then some players, not all, I'm told the league expects to phase them in depending on medical guidelines. And so the the league believes they can't do steps two through four without step one. That's why there haven't been a lot of contingency plans floated about the regular season. Also talked about how realistic, well, this is actually Dan Graziano, excuse me, on NFL teams, probably not sticking uh, with opening all facilities. I don't think it's 100% certain that they stick to that plan of if one facility is closed, all have to be closed. Because I think if you have the ability to get people back in the facility, get staff back in the facility, it also gives the league an opportunity to see how that's working. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see uh, how the NFL starts to put these plans into place. How realistic is it that mini camps will happen in June? This is Jeremy Fowler with more on that. So OTAs and mini camp will all be done virtually and that anything in person will be scrapped. The league is still holding out a sliver of hope. They haven't made a final call on that. I think everybody's more comfortable with training camp later on in the summer because they know they need at least a few weeks to practice and get ready for game action. Any big decision like this with players will have to involve the players' union. And I spoke to somebody just recently about whether they're going to informally poll their hundreds of players about how they feel about getting on planes, getting back in buildings, on practice fields. I was told, yes, they are going to do all those things soon. They're simply not there yet. They need more information. Where are things in the NBA? Where do they stand? Ramona Shelburne on momentum building for on all sides for a return. There's increased momentum, I think, in the league because it's coming from both the players, the owners, and in the league office. And, and they're working together on this. I don't think there's any other way that this would happen because, as Adam Silver said on that call with the players on Friday, this all has to be collectively bargained. Nobody's going to push one side to do something that they don't, they're not prepared to do. Um, Ramona Shelburne also saying that at some point, uh, people in the league way more worried about next season and how things will be impacted for 2020 slash 2021. Everybody I talk to these days, like, you know, as much as everybody wants to finish out the season and that's the most pressing issue, um, lurking like the big giant blinking light. Okay, it's like next year, next year, next year. What is that really going to look like? How much are fans going to be able to come back, if at all? when and that i think is the big scary thing for a lot of people right now financially where um if you could if i could say to you right now okay league's gonna start december 25th uh they're gonna get you know all all 82 games in uh they'll just have less off days and maybe the all-star break will be shorter or we won't have an all-star break or whatever um okay but do you feel confident in that i don't I don't know where the state of the world is going to be and the state of fans attending games again is going to be by December. We could be in the middle of a second wave. And I think that is um, a far bigger concern right now than even trying to project anything, which is which is simply not what's the best case scenario, but what is the worst case scenario.
Live golf was back, returning to TV for a Skins game that raised more than $5 million for COVID-19 relief funds on Sunday. Pretty cool. Rory McIlroy delivering the winning shot. Uh, He and Dustin Johnson, who had not won a skin since the sixth hole, had a chance to win the final six skins worth $1.1 million on the final hole at Seminole in the relief exhibition, but both missed. They returned to the par 3 17th for a closest to the pin contest instead. From a forward tee at 120 yards, Matthew Wolf was 18 feet below the hole. His partner Ricky Fowler missed the green. Johnson found a bunker and then down to the last shot. Rory barely stayed on the shelf, left the pin, measured at 13 feet. But the final carryover gave McElroy and Johnson a $1.85 million pot for the American Nurses Foundation. Pretty cool. Fowler, who made seven birdies, and Wolf made $1.15 million for the CDC Foundation. So really cool. Golf was able to be back. Of course, following social distancing guidelines, I think it was Fowler. Is it Fowler at one point that uh, did the like Air 5? Uh, it was either Rory or Fowler, but it was great. When Cam Newton was released by the Carolina Panthers, a lot of us thought, hey, Los Angeles Chargers, this might be a good landing spot for Cam. And their head coach, Chargers coach Anthony Lynn, acknowledging in a recent interview with CBS Sports in Los Angeles that they absolutely considered signing Newton. They did take a look at it, but ultimately they felt really good about the quarterbacks that they had on their roster. Tyrod Taylor, Easton Stick, Lynn said, those are guys that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, Stick was a Division One AA star. He won like three national championships. He's a heck of a leader, heck of a professional, and I think he has a bright future in this league one day. But with him, Tyrod Taylor, and knowing that we had an opportunity to get one picking six in the draft, of course that pick ultimately being Justin Herbert, all the, those decisions came into play when talking about Cam, Lynn said. He also added that Cam's a tremendous quarterback. He's been an MVP of this league. He's led his team to a Super Bowl, and he's healthy now. From what I hear, he's going to be on somebody's roster. He's going to help somebody win a few games. 31-year-old Newton, still without a job, missed 14 games last season because of a foot injury that required surgery. He also has uh, battled a shoulder injury in recent years but remains unsigned since being released by Carolina on March 24th. Well, the New York Giants told cornerback DeAndre Baker reportedly to stay away from team meetings and focus on his legal uh, issues at the time. According to an ESPN report, Baker faces four counts of armed robbery and four counts of aggravated assault with a firearm from an incident that occurred Wednesday night in Miramar, Florida. He's been granted bond at $200,000 on Sunday morning after spending the night in the Broward Sheriff's Office jail. Um, More details on that report, which, of course, also... the. Apparently, or at least according to the uh, warrant, uh, the arrest warrant, excuse me, allegedly involves Seahawks cornerback Quentin Dunbar. Both of those players turned themselves into jail on Saturday after arrest warrants were issued for both of them in relation to the alleged armed robbery investigation. Both were issued bond on Sunday, according to the Broward County Sheriff's Office in Florida. Miramar police said Dunbar. Uh, turn himself in on what his attorney, Michael Greco, calls a bogus arrest warrant based solely on uncorroborated witness statements. Dunbar appeared in Broward County Bond Court on Sunday, and a George reported, judge reportedly granted him $25,000 bond per count, totaling $100,000 for four counts of armed robbery with a firearm, according to the jail's website. Dunbar, uh, after posting bail and leaving jail on Sunday, posted a statement on his Instagram page. He said, quote, I would like to thank all my fans for the support and apologize to the Seattle Seahawks organization for any unnecessary distractions that these allegations against me have caused. In addition, I'm very grateful to be a part of a team that supports one another and upholds the credibility 
of each of its members through adverse situations. Moving forward, the this entire situation has taught me how to not associate myself with environments that may mischaracterize my values and who I am. Uh, we got some insight from Andrew Brandt, who is a columnist for the Monday Morning Quarterback, uh, also hosts the Business of Sports podcast, formerly working for ESPN and formerly the Packers, but on how uh, there are different laws when within the NFL when it comes to disciplining players. There's three areas to consider right now. There's the law, and there's the law of Goodell, and then there's the law of Seattle Seahawks. And these are all different determinations, and each team has their own course, and it may vary from player to player. You know, the obvious point that I make all the time is this is not a democracy in pro sports. Andrew Brandt saying, considering the situation, he believes nothing will happen uh, with Dunbar for a while with the Seahawks. The key thing is, you got a couple things going on here. You've got COVID. You've got this incredibly unique time in history where so much focus is away from sports. And then even in a normal situation, we're in May. So we're a long way from playing games. So what all that means is my sense is nothing happens for a while. Nothing happens. Just a note, uh, Quentin Dunbar's attorney, Mike Greco, will join John Clayton this morning at 11 a.m. right here on 710 ESPN Seattle to uh, give his client's side of the story and chat about that. Um, So don't miss out on that. 11 a.m. this morning on 710 ESPN with the professor, John Clayton. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz Six Hour. I hope everybody had a fabulous weekend and looking forward to hanging out this week right here on the Blitz. Dan and Galat coming your way next.